everybody, I'm Frankie. And I'm Daniel, and welcome to Propagated Podcast. Yay! How are you? I've been doing well. Just played some volleyball today, which was nice. Nice, going outside. Did some chores, which was terrible, but necessary you know i went outside for literally five minutes and got about 30 mosquito bites my entire foot is red (laughs) i don't know what it is with the mosquitoes around here this year but they are obscene they're beefy as heck yes all year i thought it was just my friend's house and then i come home and i'm getting the same amount and when i went to the beach I was getting a bunch of bites down there, too. It's just like I can't escape the damn things. It's just <gasps> have, like, magic blood or something. It's terrible. It's terrible. Apparently that's a thing, though. Like, they're attracted to certain types of blood types. I don't know if that's actually true, but it's worth it. I have heard that before. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> I feel like I'm the kind of person that I'm like, wow, that cool fact. And then I just believe it. And <laughs> this is why I do research. <laughs> I am definitely that kind of person. I have 100% regurgitated total lies before, and somebody's <laughs> like, that's just wrong. And I'm like, I realized oh, a lot of it comes from just God like damn. growing up with an older brother, and he would tell me the most ridiculous stuff, and I would just believe him because I adored him. <laughs> See, I never believed anything my older brother said because all they did was lie to me because I was well, very young. But <laughs> You're smarter than I was, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> or I just have meaner older brothers, one of the two. Yeah. All right, so I guess it's my week to lead, right? Yeah, totally. Hopefully it goes better than last week since I was tanked <laughs> by the time I was doing any Isn't of that mine. that every week, though? It's fine. <laughs> I, mean, I feel like every time it's been so good. My theory is that it's like you can hear all the awkward pauses and stuff while you're recording and you think about it too much, but then like once those are edited out, it always sounds great. Frankie out here killing it with all the editing because she has the software that I'm too poor to pay for (laughs) yeah it's yeah i don't mind doing it though it's actually incredibly fun for me and i took mondays off now so that i can like work on stuff that matters to me you know like not that you you know what i mean just going and working a job just to pay rent is different than like doing your art and writing and working on your podcast and stuff like that so it's definitely very important to have some like personal time to do the things that you enjoy that aren't necessarily just for profit yeah absolutely cool so are you gonna tell me about orchids yeah so last week i did a little bit more of the nitty-gritty just kind of generic orchid facts told you about some of the types of orchids that exist and where they're from that kind of thing this week i'm going to try and make it a little bit more fun and talk about some orchid history and while i say fun I think I'm going to get labeled as the person who always talks about the depressing side of plants because orchids <laughs> have a pretty dark history. Um, well, we're into the dark history, it. though. That's fun uh, for us. <laughs> but yeah, the the history of orchids, I didn't realize, and it's not it's something that I just kind of recently ran across. I found this really cool article that delved into the history of orchids and how kind of crappy it is when you mm-hmm. really look at it deeply. And so that's kind of the direction I'm taking today. On brand. I know, right? It's very me <laughs> to be dark and twisty about I feel everything. like it's this whole podcast, honestly. It's like, here's this happy thing about agave. Just kidding, they're going to die. Just kidding. 
We're all dying now because it's a monoculture. How about we tell you about everything killing all the plants you love? Because that's how we're going to lead our entire podcast. But yeah, like I said, today I'm going to kind of take a departure from just talking about the simple facts and talk about how these illustrious flowers could kind of turn people into their worst versions of themselves in a lot of ways. Mm. So just to start off, I'm going to talk a little bit about the history of orchids and like the first recorded appearance of orchids like in written history was around 300 BC, which is crazy. This guy named Theophrastus, which I probably pronounced wrong. It's a Greek name and I'm sorry, but he first mentioned it in his writings, Inquiry into Plants. And just as a little perspective, Theophrastus was a student of Aristotle, so that's like the time period that we're talking mm. about. But realistically, it wasn't until Dioscorides? I don't know. I <laughs> You'll have to look that one up for yourself. I'll never know how to pronounce it. But he was a Greek <laughs> medical botanist and physician, and he was the first one that like clearly said orchids were orchids and like gotcha. classified them away from other plants, and that was in the first century. What so orchids have been around for forever. Botanist. That sounds so cool. Uh, well, this was in the first century, so he was probably like somebody who fed you plants to try and make you feel better, <laughs> and was te- probably most people were probably kind of test dummies for him. Yeah. Realistically. Oh gosh. Oh no. <laughs> it's like here, try this deadly nightshade for your headache. We'll see what happens a day from now. Chew on this bark. <laughs> let me let me see what happens. <laughs> Um, also, there are people like Confucius, who's very obvious, like, huge uh, Asian philosopher. He's said to have kept orchids in his chambers as inspiration and even wrote poems praising their fragrance. So while orchids have, like, a vast history and they're all over historical texts, I want to focus on how such a beautiful plant that has such an awesome history kind of became a cog in this machine of like classism and colonialism and Ooh, even misogyny, yeah. which is mm. you wouldn't really think about. Ooh, I can't wait. You know, you read a lot of articles, which are super interesting articles about these explorers that went, and it'll be like these fanciful stories of glorious adventure where these adventurers spend years of their life looking for perfect specimens to add to their orchid collection. But what they often glaze over is the damage that industry did to native colonies of orchids Mm. and also the damage it did to orchids' overall image in the 19th century, which was kind of the turn of the Industrial Revolutions when all this like got to this orchid mania phase, which is what they call it. So if you haven't figured it out, obviously orchids are one of my favorite plants. And I never, I just, I can't believe I never really looked into the history and, you know, you get, like, little bits of these stories about adventurers and articles and stuff. But when I found this or- this article about 19th century orchid mania and how it tied into all of the dark side of it, I just went down a total rabbit hole. Um, oh, so in the late 18th and, 19th and early 19th century, you know, the world was kind of being introduced to the height of the Industrial Re- Revolution. It came with this ideology that, if you're a white person and you get there first, that land's yours now, and you can kind of do with it what you mm-hmm. will. Mm-hmm. And that's obviously terrible, and I wish it were a lot different today, but it's kind of not. But with that came this idea that you could take the most beautiful parts of these worlds that used to be unattainable, like, and bring it back 
and get to enjoy it. And that was like the idea that sparked the orchid industry. You know, wealthy people would pay top dollar for like rare and new specimens coming from tropical exotic places. And a lot of that came from, which is just a small blurb, uh, glass manufacturing became a lot cheaper in the industrial revolution, which led to wealthy people being able to construct greenhouses Oh, which led yeah. to the led the drive to populate their greenhouses with really cool things. Gotcha. So that's like a little blurb about how this all kind of was part of like the spurring factor of people wanting these plants because they had a really efficient and cheap, cheapish way for wealthy people to keep them. You know. Yeah. And so these, this the cheaper glass led to the inflation of the wealthy building greenhouses and housing their plunders from all over the world. And I think that we as a society, especially back in the 19th century, often look at plants as like stationary and unfeeling things. Yeah. And with that mindset, it seemed like you were kind of able to remove it and relocate it and it wouldn't hurt anything. Like, yeah. they are not, like what are you going to hurt if you move a plant from one place to another? <sighs> I mean, if I'm being perfectly honest, I benefited from that mindset considering I have about 50 tropical plants in my bedroom alone. <laughs> but... Still not the greatest thing. Delving in a little bit more about how the orchid industry was really rough back then. It was like considered the super manly thing to go on a quest over the ocean into some beautiful tropical place and bring home as many orchids as you could. And there's this cool book that touches on it. There's this lady, Orlean, and it's the book The Orchid Thief. And a quote from that book is, In 1901, eight orchid hunters went on an expedition to the Philippines and within a month, one of them had been eaten by a tiger, another had been drenched with oil and burned alive, five had vanished into thin air, and one had managed to stay alive, uh-huh. is the quote from the book. And this is like an account of a group of expeditioners going out to these tropical places trying to oh. find stuff. And it said, with varying degree of accuracy, that the last man standing walked out of the jungle with 47,000 orchids. What? We're, I don't, if we're being realistic, I'm sure that's an inflated number. Well, I mean, he, I mean, I'm sure he was boxing and carrying them back. Yeah, you know, nope. like once you yep. find a just, grove, yep. you can get mm-hmm. back thought to it. Thought about that. That. Yep. I thought. I like just imagine this guy with like this huge knapsack, <laughs> just like filled with orchids, <laughs> dragging it through the wastelands of a jungle, like running away from tigers, like ah. <laughs> I love that. That's like the best. I feel like if anybody is listening to this, can you make an animation of that for me to watch? Because that's just my favorite thing in the world. Um, But then, you know, these guys would also like document the environment that they got them from and then return home and sell them to the highest wealthy bidder. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like I said, a lot of times a bunch of people would leave on a boat and just a few would return. So upon return, these men would be heralded as like these epic adventurers and they could count on accruing some serious wealth of their own through those trades, you know? Yeah. And because of that, like the hunt and the exploration being ascribed in this era to like this manly thing that was happening, it kind of caused the ideal of, I guess, gender ascribed to the plan itself to take on a new look. So when you're talking about, like, earlier eras, orchids were always described as this, like, manly plant because they have a lot of them, especially where they were categorized in Greece, are very bulbous in, oh, like, the yeah, plant yeah. itself. Uh-huh. 
And so the root of the word orchid is ac- actually orchis, which is a Greek word for testicle. So oh, like, really? The, the plants prior to the ni- yeah, the plants prior to the 19th century were ascribed to like a more manly thing. You would use the Grecian people thought that orchids, the, the orchids that grew in their area, could be used as either an aphrodisiac or a tool to quell lust. And they would look at the orchids and find the plants that were growing in a clump, and the bigger bulbs could be used as an aphrodisiac, and the smaller bulbs were said to make you, like, take down your lust, you know? So it's super weird. So these always had, like, this weird manly attributes, like this, like, kind of male gendering ascribed orchids. But then once you get into the 19th century... And you have the manliness ascribed to the collection of these plants instead of the plants themselves, you start to see a shift in the mindset. And I mean, I doubt that anyone would argue in the heyday of the Industrial Revolution that misogyny was even more rampant than it is today, which is still not amazing. Yeah, yeah. So instead of orchids being regarded as this masculine thing, it took, in my opinion, a kind of more sinister term. One in which it was regarded not only for its beauty, but that, like, kind of creepy ideal that you're capturing that beauty and you get to hold it against its will. Oh, yeah. And, like, bring it home and, and that's like your the, treasure. Yeah. Oh, God, and I never thought like about it like that. And it's, like, yours forever and you, Ooh. like, can... See, and it's just this really gross thing. Yeah. And there's even a... I found a blurb from a 19th century growing manual, and it said, and I quote... Orchids are a marvelous, marvelously docile. As with women and chameleons, their life is the reflection of what is around them. Ew. End quote. So that was like the view, like, it's kind of how like the misogyny works its way into the orchid trade. And you just really, I didn't really ever even consider that. Yeah. You know, when I was ever thinking about orchids, but it's really gross. And now I'm like, is it unethical for us to have houseplants? <laughs> I'm like rethinking everything I know, now. Right? I'm and like, this, oh no, these poor This thing things, literally, probably... it literally fucked me up for a second. <laughs> and orchids yeah. now are a little bit better because most of them are cloned and grown in greenhouses. There's very little wild orchid collection anymore. It's yeah. literally protected by most governments around the world oh, that's good. as an illegal thing to do. That doesn't mean it doesn't happen. I'll talk about that in a minute, too. There's a whole contra- like modern-day controversy with that, too. But um, I just really never even considered the misogyny Yeah, interesting. that a Me plant either. could hold behind it, you know? Yeah. And I think that's honestly another way that, like, even if you look at major orchid collectors today and major growers, a good majority of them are men. And I feel like it's just another small way that, you know, the patriarchy has just kind of been upheld for centuries is old white men just kind of keep get to keep doing these things that are that they deem appropriate for themselves, you know? Yeah. And it can be hard for anybody to break into that industry because it's not cheap. Yeah. And, you know, when you talk when you start talking about misogyny and the patriarchy, it's really not that hard to see the trend I'm going for. You also have to consider the colonial nature of the orchid trade yeah back in the 19th century you would like i was talking about that excerpt from the orchid thief earlier these explorers would go out 
And instead of sustainably removing enough plants for the for like these populations to repopulate, yeah. they would take entire groves. What? Without any concern. Without any concern. <sighs> and and you know we'll actually never really know if we lost any species because it's not like there was any record keeping back then of species that existed. So there could be entire species of orchids that just maybe still exist somewhere in some British greenhouse or American greenhouse or greenhouses around the world that no longer exist in the wild because of the greed of these people that thought they could just go and plunder wherever they wanted to. Yeah, that sucks so hard. And I mean, it's like I was saying earlier, I would like to say that with the invention of all of the like laws that exist today to protect native plants, that this would have been quelled. But these problems are still like super prevalent today. So there's a particular orchid known as Kobe, Kobaki, I think is how you say it. Um, and it was discovered by Americans Michael Kovac and Lee Moore. So essentially, these guys were in Peru traveling. They're like known adventurers. They they go out and look for native orchids, but they're the more like they're typically just there to admire them. Mm-hmm. But they run across these guys selling orchids on the side of the road. And Michael Kovac has a solid knowledge of orchids and recognizes that he's never seen an orchid that looks quite like this anywhere, mm-hmm. ever. And so without any approval and without going through any of the appropriate channels, they brought this orchid back to America in his suitcase. Oh, no. From Peru. And got a group of scientists in America to check to see if it was, in fact, a previously undiscovered species. And it was. And then this guy convinces the scientists to name the orchid after him. What an asshole. Which I'm sure the people of Peru would probably have liked to discover and named their own fucking plant. <laughs> like, for yeah. real. And, it, and that, to me, kind of highlights the... I don't want to sound too blanket with this, but kind of highlights that problematic attitude taken by a lot of Westerners that as long as you have your hands on it first, then it's yours. And like, what else is somebody else? What is somebody else going to do if you were the first to like patent an idea or discover a thing? Or, or that idea of like, no one will appreciate this as much as I appreciate this. Right. This is mine. So it was really ridiculous. And, I mean, obviously, he went. There's like a very lengthy legal battle behind it, and he got fined out the ass and had to spend a bunch of money, but didn't get any jail time, which I think is absurd. I think that somebody's stealing from another country. Yeah. I mean, imagine if it was like what we've talked about in the past. Imagine if that was an invasive plant that he thought 100%, was really pretty. That's what I was Or something thinking. like that, you know? Yeah. There's that, that's the reason those laws exist. It's not necessarily so you can't bring a pretty thing back it's so that you don't bring a pretty thing back that's going to destroy an entire ecosystem with it you know yeah and orchids are a little bit different because they're very it's not easy to establish a species of orchid where it doesn't exist because they're very evolved plants they've been around for so long that they usually have a very specific insect or bird or something that pollinates them so obviously it's gonna they're not gonna be an invasive species but still Shouldn't, you never shouldn't know. Be, shouldn't be breaking the law like that. It's just kind of fucked up. <laughs> Stealing plants. And then, you know, I also kind of have to talk about the classism after the colonialism and the misogyny 
then you look at a whole new level of classism that the European culture supported around the orchid trade. To even consider housing these or orchids, not only did you have to have space enough to build a greenhouse, which means you had to be a landowner, which is not very common, yeah. but you also had to have the connections to the traders on the docks that would come in with them, so to get them before they were bought up. And you also had to build the fucking greenhouse, which I'm sure still wasn't a cheap thing to do yeah. back then. Yeah. And so you look at a like a whole system of the wealthy just being able to accrue more and more, you know, by proxy of money, which is really stupid. And, you know, you could write novels about classism in the 18th and 19th century. But realistically, I don't think a lot has changed other than the modalities of wealth inequality, you know, like, yeah. So I, I personally found it very interesting to take this like deeper dive into the history of the orchid trade and just kind of highlight, you know, the idea that a lot of the things that people love and a lot of things that we look at on the daily and, and appreciate don't always come from the most, you know, modest backgrounds or the nicest yeah. backgrounds and I think that gets overlooked a lot. Totally. So that was kind of the point behind me delving down this. I know I didn't give you much plant knowledge today. It was more No, I loved that. That was incredible. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and a side note, I know that I was talking about how these people had to have greenhouses to care for these orchids. And I'm going to go ahead and advocate for the fact that I love orchids and you can have them as house plants. The <laughs> difference between the orchids in the nineteenth century are that they're native orchids, whereas what you buy most often today are hybrids, and hybrids are kind of built to be more hardy and uh, able to exist in your home, whereas a native species kind of has to have the environment it was supposed to be in. Yeah. So, so I don't want like people to like. Yeah. yeah. I don't want people to like listen to this and be like, well, last week he talked about how easy orchids are, and this week he's saying you have to have a specialized <laughs> greenhouse to grow them. Not true. <laughs> <gasps> Unless you want some crazy native orchid, which a lot of them are really beautiful. Yeah, but I, th I think that also goes into, like, don't have an expensive or rare plant if you don't have the ability to give it its happiest environment. <laughs> Fair, and I'll be honest about the fact that I have had several expensive and rare plants that I have killed because I thought I could make it work, and it doesn't, so. Yeah. Oh, it's so sad. Well, at least, like, I feel like plants now, even though some of them are incredibly expensive, at least, especially with like propagation and stuff, it's easier to, it's not so classist, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. I took definitely one of the most extreme examples. Orchids today are still fairly classist if you want to like get to the nitty gritty of it and actually like breaking into the field growing orchids or any of that is an incredibly expensive trade. Yeah. And you have to have connections with the right people. You have to have a greenhouse if you're going to do it on a level where you're growing enough to, like, start a business like that. Yeah, and, like, if you go to, like, I used to be a part of the Western North Carolina Orchid Society. I was the only person there under 45. The only mm -hmm. person that was in the Orchid Society because it is just cost prohibitive. And the plants themselves are really expensive. And they also mm -hmm. have kind of a name behind them as being like really finicky plants which isn't always true but that's kind of what that's kind of like the 
common knowledge about them as they're more finicky plants than your average house plant but yeah. i can keep an orchid alive and my fiddle leaf figs always die so yeah want to talk yeah, about totally. that like so what's your like ideal vision for the future of orchids i mean ideally i would like to see a younger generation be more excited about them because i know that hmm. like there is a lot of our generation and the generation below us and the generation directly above us that are very excited about houseplants and keeping houseplants. Totally. I'd like to see that barrier broken down of like thinking that you're not able to keep an orchid and having the cost prohibitive side of orchids being taken down a notch because realistically if you've ever gone to like a wholesale orchid place there's no reason for your local shops to be charging what they're charging but they can because mm. they're pretty and typically only orchid. people with established yeah. yeah it's like it's just it's a whole thing so i'd like i would definitely like to see more people buying orchids and more people be getting on that train because if that happened then that kind of forces the supply to go up yeah which would force the prices down a little bit but but ideally i would like to see it definitely be more of a well-embraced thing people taking more time to look into and purchase orchids and Totally. And not I mean, be I think we talked them. about this a little bit last episode, but um, I bought my first orchid with you, and it's like, it's literally the easiest, most happy plant that I have right now. Like, I don't know. It's, it's just, it's so easy to take care of. I just soak it once a week. And then I rescued those orchids from my friend who was moving, and all of them are just doing great. They're so happy. And I was just like astounded at how easy they were to take care of. And people, a lot of people get frustrated because they can't get their orchids to bloom again. Mm -hmm. And realistically, that boils down to just needing to do a little bit of research. Like some orchids, they need a 10 degree difference in your daytime temperature and your nighttime temperature to know that they're supposed to spike because that's what yeah. they have naturally. And if they're not getting that, then they're going to grow still and they're going to look healthy and they're going to be happy, but they're not going to bloom for you. Some orchids need a specific fertilizing mix for a specific set of months because that's what they get in the wild. So realistically, when you're, if your orchid's not blooming for you and looks really healthy and happy, just research your orchid a little bit and see what they need to be happy and be able to rebloom for you. It's, it's typically just a little parameter that you need to follow. Yeah. Yeah. So go buy orchids, everybody. <laughs> Send us pictures of your orchids. <laughs> Please, I love that. <sighs> are you finished i don't want to yeah i think that's i think that's the this thing that's my bit sweet i have no idea what you're talking about this week because it's supposed to be a surprise so that's exciting well i stuck with the epiphytes so i did this kind of backwards and last week i focused on one talansia the one i couldn't pronounce talansia usnioides the Spanish moss, and really went into detail with that. But today, as I was doing research, I kind of just kept it broad epiphytes. So I'm just really going to do this backwards and just give you the broad, broad, the broad umbrella for now. And see, we did, we did pretty much the exact opposite. I went yeah, broad exactly. last week. So. <laughs> you had specialized knowledge today. I'm going to have general knowledge today. Um, so I'm talking about epiphytes and talking about Greek. We were just talking about Greek names. Epiphytes comes from a Greek. Oh, I started talking so fast and then I just trip over my words. I mean, I feel you. I trip over myself all the time. 
Today I literally was playing volleyball and tried to run for the ball and tripped and fell on my face in the sand. And then the volleyball came down and hit me in the back of the head while my face oh, no. was in the sand. So that, so if we want to talk about tripping over ourselves, you're not alone. I promise. I do it all the time. <laughs> that makes me feel so much better. Okay. <laughs> Let's start again. So epiphytes is a Greek name. It is epi, which means on top of, and phyte, which means plant. So it literally translates to on top of plant. Plant on top of a plant. Plant Perfect. on top of plant. <laughs> um, when I'm talking about epiphytes, I'm referring to not a specific, like, relatedness. When I say epiphyte, it's like the, it's, I'm referring to the growth of form. It's not one family. Like, a lot of different families fall under epiphytes. Yeah, lots so. of orchids are epiphytes. Mm-hmm, exactly. So all epiphytes grow without soil, and many of them have different adaptations for surviving in their nutrient-poor conditions. So I have a couple of those. The first one is Tillandsia, which is the largest member of the bromeliad family, has around 400 types and includes countless hybrids that no two varieties are exactly the same. That's wild to me. I had no idea that there were so many Tillandsias. <laughs> they get their nutrients from dust and debris that gets caught in their tri trichomes, which is like those little hair bits that they have on their leaves. And that's how they get their trace minerals. Asplenium is a genus of about 700 different kinds of ferns. Uh, their common vernacular name is spleenworts, which I had never heard before and was laughing about earlier. I was like, that's spleenworts? such a... Spleenworts? Can I have a spleenwort? Doesn't it sound like I something you'd that. put in your cauldron? That's like You're the like, cutest name. Ooh, spleenwort. <laughs> I feel like we have, whenever we do a witchy episode, we have to look up spleenworts and they have to have some kind of witchy... They, they yes, just have to, definitely. right? Definitely. They will make a reappearance, I'm sure. <laughs> Um, how they get their nutrients is they'll cull them from leached water. So basically old leaves and forest floor goo and animal droppings and debris will steep into the water kind of like a gross forest floor tea. And then during rain infusion, it'll run it over their roots and they'll absorb it. And that's how they get their trace nutrients from that infusion. That's so cool. It's yeah. like was even new meaning to human houseplant we all love tea and apparently so do epiphytes that's so yeah. cool just feed them a little bit of gross goo tea <laughs> i kind of want to do that now i kind of want to just go get some leaves out of the yard and start soaking my air plants and spanish yeah. moss in it and see if it like totally pops off after that i mean i feel like that'll help i've seen people make fertilizer out of like banana peels and like rainwater and all kinds of stuff yeah i'm not gonna do that until after the mosquito season is over though because i don't need any more standing water anywhere near <laughs> yeah. my house maybe that is why i have so many mosquitoes by the front door is because i keep all my rainwater buckets out there <laughs> yeah, you should. that is probably, probably exactly yeah, what it that's is that's probably it <laughs> as i itch my ankles you can get mosquito pellets that don't hurt your plants Ooh, i've never heard of this they dissolve in the water and it keeps the larva from growing love that I will look into that after this episode for sure, because they are terrible. <laughs> some epiphytes will farm bacteria and fungi. So I was reading about how some, you probably know more about this than I do, but some orchid roots will tap into a fungi or harvest bacteria for their trace minerals, and they'll exchange 
that for sugar? Yeah, a lot of when people are growing epiphytic orchids, one of the most common bacteria they use is called mycorrhiza. Mm -hmm. And uh, it is what a lot of orchids in the wild will feed off of. And that's like when you find a new stand of orchids like far away from each other is typically because the seeds have been carried, but the seeds just happen to land on the specific patch that has mycorrhiza growing. Mm -hmm. And then they're able to sprout from that and the roots are able to get nutrients which is kind of crazy cool but my yeah i did it is really cool that orchids will feed off of a fungus or that's a bacteria but. yeah yeah and then also this one was really cool i went into a little bit of a rabbit hole for this but some species of bromeliads are carnivorous although it's contested and debated but um because like all rosette formed bromeliads trap water in uh, the bottom of their leaves where they hit the base and debris and sometimes insects will get caught in there and then the bromeliad will absorb all those nutrients but researchers have noticed that there are three types in particular of bromeliads that take in so many insects at such a high rate that they're arguing that um, these plants have learned how to sur survive by being carnivorous what the fuck that's yeah. dope. I'm so into that. Carnivorous bromeliads. Mm -hmm. So I have, oh gosh, here we go. Brachinia hectioides, Brachinia reducta, and Catopsis berteroniana. 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 Yep, I feel like you were doing that so swimmingly until that last one, which sounds like it has I like know. 50 letters. It's For a ridiculous. second, I think I added in too many I's and A's, but I really think that's the name. <laughs> um, so what they have in common is all three of them have a conspicuous color. All three are very bright yellow, and they form a rosette to resemble a flower. Uh, they all have UV reflective powder coating on their leaves to attract insects that are sensitive to UV light. UV reflective mm -hmm. powder coating. Yes. To attract insects. Yes. That are sensitive to UV light. And there's somebody arguing that they're I not know, right? carnivorous? <laughs> what the fuck? That yeah. sounds like some bullshit. Whoever's arguing against that sounds like they're just playing like devil's advocate at this point. Come on. Yeah botanist advocate <laughs> and then the third thing is that they they do secrete a sweet smelling odor to attract insects so it's like okay i mean this kind of points to they want these bugs you know i guess maybe the debate is that they're not technically digesting the bug right away because basically what happens is once the bugs are inside and trapped in this water most insects can't escape on the leaves because they're so slippery and they just can't get traction. Um, and so they drown in the stored water and die. And then as they slowly decompose, they make this nutrient soup that the bromeliads, um, you know, digest via their, their trichomes on their leaves. Well, I would be willing to argue, granted I am not a botanist, nor do I know much about botanical history. <laughs> Same. <laughs> that carnivorous plants at one point probably also did not have digestive fluids and did the exact same thing now that's just me making some total conjecture yeah. off of <laughs> pulling shit completely out of my ass but it's to me that makes sense yeah 
It sounds yeah. like well, evolutionarily okay. they're well on the way to becoming totally. a total carnivorous plant totally. if they're not already. Um, I'm going to talk about it in a little bit, but all bromeliads contain some level of bromeliane. Bromeliane? I think that's how you say it. Bromeliane? Which is basically a protein-degrading enzyme. So right. I'm like, mm. It's the same stuff that's in pineapples, yeah. right? That's why pineapples yep, are the only, exactly what I'm the only talk about. fruit that eat you. Sorry, I don't mean to be taking it. Oh my gosh, you just ruined my fun fact of the week. <laughs> Dang it. No, we'll talk about it. Edit that it out. Week. It'll be fine. Edit it out. Post. I never said it, I swear. I'll just edit carrots in again while you're t- talking. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Please do. <laughs> um, so epiphytes as houseplants. They are non-toxic to pets and kids, but pretty much a good rule of thumb for any houseplant you have, if you have pets and kids, is to keep them out of reach of pets and kids as much as you can. I mean, that just Um, seems kind of commonsensical, right? Yeah, totally. Also, my pet, I just have a dog, so Yeah, even if it's non-toxic, you don't really want your cat just, like, nomming on it all the time. (laughs) Um, They need high humidity because they're so used to frequent rain. And the thing about them is that epiphytes live in salt-deprived areas, so they have adapted to basically any salt it comes in contact with, they absorb immediately because rainwater is extra pure. And the problem with that is that people will water them with tap water, which is full of salt. So these plants will die because they just have this huge overload of salt. So if you do have houseplants, the best way to water them is with distilled warm water. Um, and the Man. best way to do that is to make sure that it dries afterwards because another huge thing that kills houseplants is when the water accumulates in them and they'll rot from the inside. So soak and mist them and make sure they dry at least three hours. I did not I did learn after I killed several air plants that they had to be allowed to dry. Yeah. Or they would rot. Uh, yeah. I did not know that about tap water. I didn't know that tap water was full of salts. Sansory. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense, but I didn't realize that's probably why I never had a lot of luck with bromeliads. Yeah. I want to do research because I always water my plants with my fish tank water. And I wonder if, like, in some part of that process, if any of the salt gets, you know, filtered or not. Hmm. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, know. I would have no, I have no idea, but that's a curious thing. Yeah. Sodium overload. Yeah, <laughs> like me when I eat french fries every single day of my life. <laughs> Where I mean, I wish I were eating french fries every single day of my life. What kind of blessed life do you live? Yeah. Damn. Uh, COVID God. life. That's what kind of life I live. <laughs> you want to know what that really makes me want right now, though? What? A fat bowl of poutine. Well, I wouldn't know. We already talked about this. Oh, I forgot. You're just rubbing it in my face now. I, keep, I don't. I don't remember anything. <laughs> I need that to be a very well known fact. If it's a week after I said something, I probably forgot I ever said it, unless it was uh, embarrassing, and then I'll remember it for the rest of my life. We had a listener friend that was yelling at me on Twitter because he was like, "I'm a Canadian. What is wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> Go get some poutine. Don't wait any longer." <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> um. Oh, I was going to, I didn't write this down, but I think it's really cool. 
as far as I understand, like the trichomes that are on the, the bromeliads and stuff on their leaves, it's like these little triangular hairs that stand up when it's dry. And then when it's wet, they go down so they can trap the water so that the leaves can absorb the nutrients. So that's why they need to dry so that those trichomes can go back up. God, plants are just like the cleverest thing ever. It's so Aren't they wild. so cool? I love plants. <laughs> I'm just going to make a shirt that says plants. I got one of the, you know those little, like, sensitive plants or, like, a type of mimosa plant? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, like, the scientific oh, name. do you know what that's called? Although, I, I'm, someone who knows more about plants might correct me in this, because I, I realize that there are two names for it. One is thigmotas, thigmotaxis, and one is, I can't remember, it's thigmo something, and I don't know which one applies to which, but I love that word, thigmo. <laughs> thigmo. Did not know that. I thought it was mimosa pudica. Maybe well, it's, so that's the um, name of the sensation when a plant reacts to touch. Oh, say it again. Yeah. Uh, thigmataxis, but let me just Google it really quick just to make sure. That's really cool, though. I hadn't, I didn't even know there was a name for that. I almost killed it once because I went on vacation, and apparently they are very water-hungry plants and need constant attention. But mm. it's really cool to watch like a plant react so quickly or respond so quickly to touch. It was really weird for me. I thought that was fun. Yeah, it's so cool. I love when they do that. I feel like there was some reason I was mentioning that that tied in with something else you had said, but now I don't remember what it was. So everybody enjoy my ramblings about my plant that reacts to touch. Yeah, thigmataxis. Okay, whew. I was so afraid that someone was going to be like, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Wipe the sweat off your forehead. You done one. Like we were talking about before, all bromeliads contain their um, proteolytic, which means protein degrading enzyme. And pineapples are in the bromeliad family. And I know you already know this, but I thought it was really cool when I learned it today. And pineapples aren't epiphytic, but I really just needed to talk about this because I thought it was so cool. <laughs> um, bromeliane is the reason that pineapples can tenderize meat. And many allergic reactions to raw pineapple are actually the effects of the pineapple literally digesting you. Yeah, because because it's bromo it's bromo bromeliane bromeliane, mm -hmm. and then when you're looking like at a organic chemistry side of it, then hum something humans don't possess that the natural thing that the like the peop the things that actually eat pineapples produce bromelase in their body, mm. and that's something that humans don't have the ability. So the enzyme never gets broken down, and that enzyme is, like, something that literally will eat you from the inside out, which is kind of cool. So don't eat too much pineapple. I'm just kidding. You can eat as much as you want. It doesn't actually hurt you, but... Yeah. But it does actually break down your the lining of your stomach. Totally. If you do have that sort of severe... Or, I guess, not severe. You're not eating pineapple if it's severe. But if you have that kind of reaction, you can destroy the enzyme by either salting it or cooking it. So, barbecue. Barbecue pineapple. That sounds so good. I want some barbecue pineapple right now. Totally. Okay, and then one last Maybe fact. Maybe I'm just hungry because I've talked about poutine and <laughs> yeah, barbecue right. pineapples at this point. But. I think I'm hungry too. It's okay. Um, maybe we should do an episode on pineapples, but for right now, I just want to talk about it because I thought it was really cool. Also, pineapples in fluorescence does not terminate. So basically, as it blooms and the fruit forms on the stalk, the tops of the pineapple keep growing and have the ability to grow into a whole new plant which I think is so cool. My roommate's mom, like, 
propagates pineapples. Yeah, I was going to say, I saw a tweet about this the other day, and I've seen someone do it before. If you need, like, the quickest and easiest houseplant, just cut the top off a pineapple and put it in dirt, and it will start rooting and grow a plant. But also, don't be upset when it doesn't happen every time, because yeah. the prop- like the success rate is not necessarily that high when you're trying yeah. to propagate. Her secret was that if you put a rotting apple in the soil beneath the fronds of the pineapple when you plant it that's Uh something that breaks down and the apple helps it root faster she like read it on some blog about propagating pineapples yeah which i have done absolutely zero research into and might be a total (laughs) lie and it might just be a placebo effect because she does it with every pineapple she buys tries to propagate it so who knows but that is what she told me I want to try it. That's my next experiment. Um, Also, you can get, I've always wanted to get, and I have never, because I just propagate usually by water, but I've heard that rooting hormone works really well that you can get at most plant stores. And if you just dip the plant in rooting hormone before you put it in the dirt, it's more likely to just immediately start rooting. Mm -hmm. That works better. It's like if you have a woodier plant that's not usually like something that you would propagate in water, Mm -hmm. rooting hormone's supposed to like significantly increase your chances people use it on sansevieria maybe i should get that for my plumeria that i just got mailed to me (laughs) yeah i mean that's exciting i think it'll be cool to watch your plumeria grow yeah me too hopefully i can make it humid enough but i think i'm gonna have to buy a humidifier i think i will too especially i've kind of gotten addicted to my ac now which i never (laughs) used to use and my room was literally just like a jungle all the time (laughs) Like, to the point where my salt lamp was literally melting. My room was oh, no. so humid. Like, that, that's, I know I would, like, exaggerate a lot in general, but my room was so humid that there's literally a pile of salt on my mantle above my fireplace in my bedroom because it was so humid next to it and it just kind of melted the salt off of it. And it was ridiculous. I love that. That'll at least keep ghosts out. I mean, that's, I mean, solid perk. Solid perk. <laughs> Not mad at it. Sprinkle a little salt above your fireplace, right? I mean, I think it, I don't know if that's exa- I don't know if that's the exact quote, but we're gonna. We're gonna make I don't it work. know if melting a salt lamp is like the accepted form of spreading salt in your house. I mean, I feel but... like there has to be some level of intention to it, right? That's like yeah, that's like sure. the bit. Yeah, that's, that's the whole bit is the intention, I think. But yeah. we're gonna go with it. I intentionally melted my salt block above. Perfect. All right. Well, that's our episode, everyone um visit us on instagram send us pictures of your orchids at propagated podcast on twitter at propagated pod and gmail at propagated podcast yeah. we do that right yeah, we do yeah that right. i think so nailed it <laughs> if you get a 404 error it's not our fault <laughs> if you get a 404 error find one of the ones that we said that didn't work or did yeah, it work for you? It'll be fine. Just replace it. <laughs> no, It'll Twitter's work the out. only one that's different. It's because, you know, they don't let you have enough letters, so it's just propagated pod. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us this week. Cheers, guys. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.